0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Continuing our series on identity, tonight's topic is the uh, country to the city. This is the idea of the movement from the country to the city and all of the problem. Not all of them, we'll be able to cover that in one evening, but many of the problems that are brought about by the development of the migration from peoples from dispersed, isolated local settings into concentrated, large-scale communal city settings. As I mentioned uh, last time, I said blame the Enlightenment. Of course, that's an exaggeration. But what the Enlightenment does is it begins to meditate on, uh, magnify, and react to the kinds of problems that are developed as people begin to move to cities. And it is the advent of some critical mass when a sufficient percentage of a population begins to live an urban existence, the sorts of problems that the uh, Enlightenment is meditating upon and the kind of ideas that that leads them to <clears throat> manifest themselves unavoidably. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody gets locked down and all of the unpleasantness begins to happen, you could see there were many newspaper articles and the headlines were things like, you know, Everyone is moving out of cities. Cities are going dark. Populations are shifting out of cities, you know, mass migration out of cities. And I mean, the notion is like, wow, you know, this is maybe this is it. This is the death knell for cities. And they caught my attention because as a student of history, one of the things that's clear is the migration to cities has been going on basically since the invention of cities. You know, if you go back, you know, ten thousand years ago, when the city starts, ninety-nine percent of the population did not live in cities. Of course, obviously, because they just got rolling. But you know, hundred years later, a thousand years later, five thousand years later, nine thousand years later, still, most of the population lived uh, in urban environments. They lived in spread farms, small villages, communal settings, estates. And if you were allowed to travel, which again, most people weren't, we'll talk about freedom of movement, it was very few people who were allowed to travel and they were known. And so again, as I mentioned before, people lived in isolated, controlled settings in which you countered very few foreigners and uh, very few large scale changes. And when they did happen, they were sort of periodic, unfortunate, catastrophic and then sort of the patterns that had been there would pick up again. And that is sort of the story of history for thousands and thousands of years. And then at some point again, you, you pick the date, this critical mass begins to form where the modes of lifestyle, <clears throat> excuse me, the modes of lifestyle that are associated with cities begin to dominate cultural expression of any given, you know, society, unit, area, region. The country no longer sets the pattern. The traditions of land ownership, uh, farming, uh, peasantry, church, these sorts of traditions start to give way to the kinds of activities, outlooks, and problems that one finds in the cities because as they develop, business develops, the the wealth develops, the power begins to shift towards cities, And a wholesale transformation takes place in this environment and that's what I want to talk about tonight because it's really hard to imagine how how true this is that this migration into cities has been going on continuously for 10,000 years and so when I saw the headlines with the pandemic I thought hmm maybe maybe but I was really quite suspicious of this because as I said this is just that that direction has been going one way for a very long time. And, you know, maybe now with remote working and everything, those patterns will start to break down. And then, of course, as we've moved on and now we're you know, whatever a year ish, maybe a little more into the pandemic. Further demographic research and patterns have been uh, being presented. And it turns out that what people are doing is moving from some cities to other cities. Um, so, you know, out-migration from New York, but an in-migration into some place like Miami. Um, also, there seems to be a decided shift from several really large cities to medium-sized cities, which is— Now, notice, because what the, the implication of the earlier articles was like, oh, people are going to move to rural locations, small— No, it's like people are moving from L.A. to Sacramento— Now, L.A. is a huge, huge megalopolis. I mean, this is a big multi-million person city, but by all standards, historical standards, Sacramento is a city. Don't be confused. It's a huge city. It's not L.A., it's not New York, it's not Mumbai, but it's still a city, you know. And so this is a change of scale, perhaps, that people are looking for, but not a change of living pattern. One city... To another city and indeed probably if we look at the demographics in three or four years from now the continuing shift of populations out of rural settings into urban settings will probably have continued unabated that would be my prediction for what it's worth and <clears throat> i see no reason to suspect that to stop anytime soon so yeah so the death of the city once again uh, much exaggerated so what happens When people move to cities, Um, you know, again, sometime in the 17th, 18th century, the populations become so large and powerful that, you know, England begins to look like London. People are like London becomes a word for, oh, that's England. I mean, it's not, but so many people are there. So much wealth is there that, yeah, people talk about London more than they talk about England. Paris becomes France, right? It just becomes sort of, the city becomes iconographic somehow of this huge landscape that has really nothing that much to do with the city. The city is the different thing, but it's the different thing that really begins to matter. So the one central thing, if we can just get this in our minds, because it's really hard to realize this because we're so used to living in large populations that you develop the problem of the stranger and this is an insoluble problem by the well it's not insoluble Um, Mao tried to solve it we'll talk about that but it's pretty much insoluble problem so when you're in a communal small-scale setting a hundred people or even a thousand people you know or know of pretty much everybody that means these people are not strangers to you and More importantly, and this is what I think often gets lost with the stranger thing, they know you or they know of you. They may not know you, but they know your parents. They may not know you, but they know your wife or your husband or or your kids or your brother or your sister, right? There's this, you know, if if I know 150 people, which seems to be sort of the upper limit of our ability to track uh, intimate relationships with people, then if I know 10 people, then between us, there's going to be some overlap, but there won't be some overlap. And boy, if a relatively small group of people can get a really good sense, sort of a second hand knowledge of about, you know, 500, 600, 700 people. <clears throat> so these communal settings can get fairly large without breaking down that fundamental pattern. But when you hit the city, the true city, whatever size that is, I don't know, then what you're doing is you're encountering people you have no idea who they are. You don't know anybody who knows them, and that is off-putting. But even more off-putting for a sense of identity is you know that they don't know who you are. And if you encounter throughout your day mostly people who don't know who you are, then it really makes it difficult for you to know who you are at a very fundamental biological, sociological level. As I mentioned, this is why I started with the chimpanzees and the monkey experiments and all those studies, which are fascinating. Again, if they're awake and moving around, they are most of the time participating in activities that reinforce who they are, who they're related to, how they relate to the chimpanzees around them or the other monkeys again it varies from monkey tribe to groups to different species but it's a continuous it's not a little bit it's, it's just you know when they like i said when they go on patrol where you are in the patrol how close you are to the leader how far away you know that determines this this continuously letting you know where you fit and that happens 24 hours a day. I mean, basically, if you're awake, you're getting that feedback that the other chimps are letting you know who you are and you're letting them know who they are. And so you have this incredibly well founded sense of identity. Fast forward to a communal setting, say a village, a rural, you know, sort of we're out farming someplace. And we have two or 300 people around. Well, maybe my, I don't know, my, <clears throat> my father's the baker. So he's the baker, everybody in town goes to the baker for whatever they need. By the way, generally, historically speaking, particularly in Europe, people didn't have ovens in their house. So a baker, you would make food at your house and then take it to the baker, and they would cook it, and then you would take it home for a hot meal. So this was a standard process. So everyone is going to know my father. By extension, when I see somebody as I'm growing up, let's say, even if I don't know them, I can be pretty sure they know who I am. And if they don't know who I am, which would be weird, but if they didn't for some reason, I can say, oh, I'm the baker's son. And it'd be, oh, yeah, we know you. Or, well, my brother is the husband of this woman who goes there every day. Oh, yeah, and I've seen her. She's known me since I was a kid. <clears throat> and that kind of direct, continuous sense of identity. Is incredibly important for being a healthy human being because it's our primate. It's the foundation of primate society. Cooperation, friendship, sharing, communication, communal living, all that reciprocation that is necessary for groups to live cooperatively has been. Um, you know in, encoded in us over thousands of millions of years of communal living that this is our big one of our big evolutionary advantages is that we can cooperate we can learn things together we can carry out group activities and then we arrive in the city and i'm faced with this astounding problem <clears throat> i don't know who you are in fact i don't know who most anybody is <clears throat> and i and i know of the time, you don't know who I am. And this is an incredibly unnerving and psychologically undermining sensation for people. And it's an issue that, of course, thinkers in the Enlightenment, they didn't think of it in these terms, but they start grasping with, well, how do I know my identity? How do I know who I am? How does one express themselves? But if you look, as I mentioned last time, at like this Tatler, the famous Tatler of the Spectator, those famous journals from London... And this happened in France. It happened in Italy. It happened all over the place, all over, you know, Western Europe. By the way, you see a similar trend in China, but we'll talk about that later. I mentioned I'm going to get to the uh, different civilizations in a bit because they do model this. It's not wildly different. Um, <clears throat> but those uh, there were journals in in London, and what do they start obsessing with? How do you behave? How do you dress? How should you entertain? Manners, presentation, self deportment. Those sorts of issues rise to the fore. Why? Because if I don't know you, what kind of clues can I use to gather a sense of who you are? And what kind of clues can I send out to other people to let them know who I am? It's all there and and so now you know fast-forward or or, you know fame and issues of fashion and people are like oh this is all crazy no it's not I mean yes it is crazy but it's not the purpose of it is not crazy it's necessary we have to have this when I dress I need to say to myself what kind of message am I sending to the strangers that I'm gonna meet today how do I let them know That I'm the kind of person that, if nothing else, I'm just going to slip by them. But they can at least have some sense that I'm okay. Or I'm not one of those people. Or I'm one of these kinds of individuals. And that necessity is articulated quite clearly, again, in The Spectator, the Tatler, and Parisian newspapers. And it becomes an obsession with style and fashion and self-presentation historically, only the very wealthy were able to participate in these kinds of activities. And, and they talked about it, right? You can see something like the, the courtier, where, you, where they talk about, you know, style and dance and presentation and what matters. And, but they all knew each other. So it was a, it's much clubbier, much more subtle, sort of a more advanced game. But once you in a world of thousands and tens of thousands of strangers, woo, <clears throat> now you're in trouble couple of things. So all kinds of things flow out of this. One, people tended to form neighborhoods. Of course, what does a neighborhood allow you to do? A neighborhood allows you to form a small group of people within a large group of people where you can be pretty sure you know some of the people that you're going to be associating with. So I had a friend in graduate school, David Fink, hey David, Um, who was Manhattan, you know, born and raised. So big city. I'm not a big city person. So I was always asking him questions about the city. And I said, man, you're in this massive, you know, multi-million person, you know, Manhattan sort of, wow. I mean, how weird is that going through your day? And he says, look, you don't live in Manhattan. You live in a block. Everything is in a block or two blocks. I know everybody That's at my local you know, deli. I know people at the local restaurant. I know people on my floor, right? So I'm actually riding my elevator from a place where I know people down to stores where I know people because I've grown up here, going to delis where I know people. So it says not that you're always in this environment of millions. You're in this environment of a small community within a massive community. So this is one thing that people do. To try to then you know sort of defend themselves a little bit the second thing of course that people immediately do is they begin to form codes of presentation and so how people dress so you know people oh well, this is fashion that's fashion that's crazy this isn't fa-. no everything is fashion <clears throat> when you once you get freedom of, to dress which is one of these things freedom of expression freedom of association oh, I want to dress how I want to dress once that's available then how you dress becomes a message. And, of course, you get these arms races of people saying, oh, originally wealthy people just tried to wear things that were really expensive so that people would say, oh, that person must be wealthy because they're wearing really expensive things. But, of course, immediately people began copying wealthy style, making cheaper versions or renting. You could rent them so that you could present yourself as if you were wealthy even though you weren't. And then people would think, oh, that's a really wealthy person. And so, of course, you know, here we go. Now we're in that problem of identity again. How do I know they're really a wealthy person and not just somebody who's masquerading as a wealthy person? But they're using the visual cues to tell me that they're a wealthy person. And so I think they must be. Also, you get many civic offices of the time. There's some holdover. But many civic offices had specific dress kinds of hats. You would carry a mace, you know, specific coats or long or, of course, the clergy was the clearest example of this, <clears throat> but many professions had this as well, so that when somebody walked by, you go, oh, that person is a lawyer, they're a barrister. That person is a clerk in the offices of, you know, some company downtown. If you've ever read any of the Sherlock Holmes stories, he does this all the time. He looks at their clothes, how they're worn, what their shoes are, and he goes, oh, this, 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 and this about him. And everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. And of course, it's slight exaggeration. But in fact, those sorts of distinctions were very much more emphasized then. And so it was, you know, not easier, but that sense of being able to look at somebody and tell a lot about them what Sherlock Holmes doing in those stories is simply exaggerating what everybody has to do all the time we've had to been be trained up and learn from our culture how to kind of guesstimate the rough identity of people that we don't know big problem Um, this you know and again it's it's sort of an insuperable problem because now we're just judging everybody on surface but when you're dealing with masses of strangers you have no choice so that's half of it. The other half of it, of course, is I want people to know who I am. Ah, Now, of course, now here we go, right? This is just the rabbit hole. To let people know who I am, I have to know who I am. But once I have freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, freedom of movement, freedom, how do I know who I am? Ipso facto, all the enlightenment thinkers that are writing books and chapters and sections trying to answer this question. I used to know who I was because everybody told me who I was all the time, and so I never worried about it. Basically, once you can ask the question of "Who am I?", you just, you're, you're in trouble, right? This is this you know you've you've passed over the Rubicon. You're on the other side, and now it's like, oh, crap! How, you know what do I do now? You know this is <clears throat> now I've got to now I've got to figure this out at some level. Now you may not be to worry about this too much consciously, but it is. It is quite difficult. Um, and you can see this when people go through changes in their lives. I mean, one of the clearest examples like professional athletes who, will, you know, oh, you're a football player, <clears throat> you practice football, you study football, you work on football, you have an off season when you aren't playing football, but that whole period is defined by, I am currently not playing football, but I soon will be playing football. And then you go back and you play football. And so, like, all those questions are, or well, not all of them, but many of them are answered. And then one day you can't play anymore, and it's like, oh, and they, lots of them talk about this. They're like, oh, I had to create a whole new version of myself. I had to think of a new way of being. I had to think, but it's, it's like, right, because you had a beautifully defined, well-structured sense of identity in which coaches and other players and a whole system and a structure told you who you were, what you were supposed to be doing, whether what you were doing was good or bad it was all there it was all very clear much, and easier on one level, I mean hard to be an athlete but easy on the level of identity politics ah and then yeah it all gets funny when you retire right when okay now that structure goes away <clears throat> now what are you going to do and it goes away by the way when you're you know graduate college or if you if you play professional you know what when you're 27 28 so now okay now you've got another you know, 50 years, the rest of your life to live and and you've got to come up with a new identity for that. And not easy, but everybody has to face these kinds of issues. And once you start asking yourself, who am I? Then it's like, well, I think I'm this kind of person. So then how do I want to present myself? And do I want to present myself as I think I am? Or do I want to present myself as the person I hope I want to be? Or do I want to present myself as the person I think they want me to be? Or do I want to present myself as someone whom I'm just hoping that they don't really notice so that I can go about my business and don't have to worry about it and not be interfered with? Yeah. I mean, it just, just, oh man, now we're in trouble, right? This is, now we don't have any hope, we're just, we're just doomed. So again, it's great freedom of expression, opportunity for self-cultivation a uh, opportunity to explore and develop different aspects of yourself so on one hand for personal liberation this is a great victory for developing a sense of identity this is really really tough and this is what begins in, primarily when you get these mass groupings of people in cities and so as I mentioned before originally they had a lot of uniforms that were required but slowly over time, the, you know, people rebelled against having to wear uniforms and then, you know, that that sort of faded out. And then you had sort of basically people were wearing uniforms, you know, even up into corporate days, right? People would, you know, office offices and, and different companies had very clear dress policies, right? It's so all the dress codes that we're familiar with. It. So we... We know you're the right kind of person. We know you're dressed the way we want to. We don't want to worry about how people are dressing, but we want to tell them how they have to dress so that we don't have to think about it. They just dress the way we tell them, and then we know they're the kind of person that we want them to be. And we don't care who they want to be. We don't care how they want to dress. They just dress the way we tell them, and then we know they're the kind of person who does what they're told to do, and then that's the kind of people that we want working in our company. Right? Beautiful feedback. And if you're an employee... You can either go, wow, I hate this, I don't want to wear these clothes, or you can go, oh, this is great, because as long as I dress this way, they think I'm the kind of person that they want. And I want them to think that I'm the kind of person that they want, and so I'll dress the way. But notice this is creating these levels of deception, self-awareness, self-consciousness that can be really quite destructive, because then people start saying, oh, well, how should I dress so that my boss is the kind of person that gets in the." You know I want a promotion and gets a raise so I need to think about how I do that so I'm not gonna worry at all about how I want to dress or present myself I'm going to only worry about how I think I need to dress so that I can get some promotion which may in fact actually be contrary to my internal sensibilities or whatever and so here we go um, you know women of course have faced this in the workplace for since they've been in the workplace right just sort of it's much more vexed for them uh, to try and answer these kinds of questions. And so, yeah, ooh, how do, how, who do I think I am? How do I want to present myself? How does that person want me to present myself? What am I trying to achieve? What is what I'm trying to achieve say about me? Yeah, see, boy, you open up a can of worms when you get in this environment. It's just really, really rough. Now, this is so recent, by the way, recent being several hundred years. There's a great book, I really love this book, by Henry Best, and it's called Northern Farm. And in the opening of the book, he's writing a train from New York City. It's, it was written in like just post-war, so like 46, 47, 48. He's writing a train from New York City to a uh, northern farm, a rural farm. And basically, he's traveling from the modern world into some pretty good semblance of the past. And he actually meditates on this indirectly because he, he's you know, going from a place of strangers and noise and radios and all this crazy, confusing modern contraptions and who knows what's going on to a place that's very quiet, very rural, very few people. He knows his neighbors. He sees him off in the distance. The kids come over and watch the house when they're gone. You know, it's just this slightly isolated because it's the American farm system where everyone's not living in a communal village setting, but they, they all know each other. They know the cycles. They're in this Completely different world, but that was 1948. 1948, Henry Beston can write a novel. Well, it's not a novel; it's a, it's a memoir or a book, I guess, just a nonfiction. And a big part of it is that experience. Like, oh, look! Why would anybody live in a city like that when you could live in a communal setting like this, where you know who you are, your neighbors know who you? Are? It's like, wow! So this is. You know this is not done and it's so recent that almost everybody now the more than half the world's population I believe now lives in cities so this is this is a world global issue uh, and everyone is facing these problems and it, it just dramatically undermines our sense of who we are and there's no avoiding that it gives you the opportunity to reestablish that sense of identity which is great this is the the beautiful now you have the freedom to be a lot of different things which also means you have the freedom to be confused and I think we're in somewhere usually somewhere in between where you know some days we feel like oh yeah I'm good I, can, I know who I am I know what's going on And then some days you're just like I don't know what's going on I don't know how did I get here it's the great you know this is not my beautiful life kind of question like how did I get here you know what happened what's going on um, that sort of vexed sense of lack of identity comes directly to the fore. And it, and it's not, it, by the way, this isn't going away anytime soon, and I'll talk more in the future of why this is actually getting much, much worse. But if you look at something even like existentialism, which comes across, you know, 200 years or so after main Enlightenment thinkers, 200, maybe 300, maybe 300 years after the main Enlightenment thinkers, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that they're obsessing about is this notion of we have existence... But we don't have an essence. We're here, but we don't have a plan. And uh, Sartre, in particular, but you know all the existentialists there, articulate this as this is a peculiarly human problem. The the example is like if you see a knife or a fork. The fork had a plan, and then it was brought into an existence. And the fork has an essence, and knows why it exists, or has clearly has a purpose humans exist without that purpose, without that essence, without that core identity of what it's for, why it's here, what it's supposed to be doing. He imagines this as a necessary human condition. I think that's wrong. I think this is a probable human condition once you get people into places like cities and give them lots of freedom because the what freedom is is telling a fork that you don't have to be a fork anymore you can be any kind of silverware you want you could be a you know iced teaspoon you could be a butter knife right which you, you know, how do you feel today right and so the fork will become confused this is what's going to happen to the poor fork of course it's going to immediately become confused because its essence has been removed but the essence is was there. This is the thing. I think where Sardis is basically wrong on this is if you go back, of course, to primate tribes, not that it never came up, right? The primate groups, you can see this, that every once in a while, you know, there'll be tension and who's on top and, you know, who, who's who's raising these kids and new people, new, new, new chimps can come in or more often they can split off. So there is a little bit of that. But most of the time, everybody is telling everybody who they are. And so you have an essence. Your essence is provided for you. And again, most people for most of human history lived in communal settings that gave them, for good or ill, right? When you're a slave, this is not a good essence. This is not an essence that helps you in many ways, but it does give you an identity. And that removal of that is what Sartre's responding to. He's responding to a modern or at least, city dwelling population problem. He's not responding to a necessary human condition, I would say. Perhaps it's a beneficial human condition because it means we'd have achieved a level of liberty and opportunity for self presentation and self reflection that puts us into a place of not having a necessarily preconceived essence. And this bums him out. It's one thing, I never understand why they're so depressed by this, because to me it always seems like, oh, well, this is the nature of liberty, right? Is that if you have an essence, then you don't have a lot of liberty. If you don't have an essence, you have a lot of liberty. So since I kind of equate personal liberty with give or take goodness, then, you know, hey, this is not a terrible problem. This is a good problem, but it is a problem nonetheless. You can't avoid it. But again, for Sartre, this was a necessary aspect of human condition. And I would rather say this is a developed aspect of human society, that it now puts almost everybody into an environment in which that is a real and disturbing problem. But again, 1948, you know, contemporaries with Sartre, you can have someone like Beston writing a book going, oh, no, I've got an essence. Look, I'm out here on the northern farm. I know exactly what's going on. I know who I am. I know who my neighbors are. That's all good, I don't have this problem, and it's you know he's and he's almost reflecting in that language, like it's pretty clear in there that this is one of the things that he's meditating on as he goes out and feeds his cows and watches the ice melt off the pond and you know goes about his kind of idyllic rural existence, so these notions are a response to or these problems are a response to a particular environment, and that environment is the cities. But I don't think cities are going away, so I don't think the problems are going away, nor do I think cities should go away. But notice this also develops into another aspect where people become desperate for identity. And I was trying to ponder examples of large-scale examples, I and mean, we can look at a lot of small scales, but the... One that I came to that really appealed to me is um, if you look at Marx's work. Now, Marx is wrong a lot about a lot of things. He ain't got a lot of things right, but he's wrong about a lot of things. And he's fairly criticized for a lot of stuff and unfairly criticized for a lot of stuff as well. Oddly, one of the things that he clearly was not true when he was alive, never was true, is never going to be true, is this whole class structure stuff. The working industrial proletariat laboring in the factories, <clears throat> the bourgeoisie who are this, you know, these sort of middle manager, uh, edu- semi-educated slaves of the capitalists. The capitalists at the top run the bourgeoisie who, who manage all of the proletariat. <clears throat> As time goes by, the bourgeoisie will diminish, either a few will become capitalists, most will be, be fall down into the working proletariat, and then one day, The industrial proletariat will rise up and overthrow their evil, cruel capitalist masters and will set up a beautiful future of workers who will all be united in a beautiful single-class universe, and all's good and well. Yay. Now, this, I mean, it was never true. It was not even remotely true. It certainly wasn't true in Marx's time. And, you know, historically, of course, it didn't play out that that way at all. But even when he was alive, it wasn't true. So most of the people, when Marx was alive, were still working on farms. They weren't industrial proletariat. They were the unwashed peasant masses and small-scale farmers and, you know, landholders and village dwellers and basically living sort of the way people had lived for a long, long time. I mean, Henry Beston, all the way to 1948, is still living sort of in this vaguely you know historical small scale agricultural world um that's who most people were and in fact till very recently that's how most people were in the world second the industrial proletariat was only ever a tiny percentage even of the city population i mean there were mills they employed a lot of people but you had a lot of the other people and then the bourgeoisie who ran this sort of clerical class or the See, they were always a small percentage then because there just wasn't that much call for administration yet. I mean, it's growing and growing and growing. And today, of course, we have more than enough administration, one would have to imagine. But well, what about all those other people, right? And so all these other terms they tried to develop, like I think Mark uses the term "lumpen proletariat," which is sort of the... You know the poor people who aren't really working in the factory but they don't fit anyplace else and you know God we don't know what to do with them and then the bourgeoisie I mean has a really wealthy bourgeoisie and when do you become a capitalist like how rich do you have to be to become a capitalist and you know all it just never made any sense which is crazy right? and people at the time did comment on this or like hey this your these class divisions are clearly just sketchy and not all that helpful and certainly don't capture the richness and the variety of the city. Ah, that's precisely it. People love this idea. We still use that language. Um, by the way, Marx didn't develop most of that language. I mean, he was, he was in a dialogue with other economists at the time. Um, and conservatives who criticized Marx for all kinds of things still love that language. I mean, if there's one thing everybody seems to like about Marx and not complain about, it's all this class nonsense. But it's just truly... Nonsense. It was nonsense when Marx wrote it. It's nonsense today. That's the thing with the city. Once you get people in cities, the whole notion of classes just sort of goes, it's done. If you're in the country, it's a little easier because basically you have the people who own the land. And that's kind of how much land you own. Then you have the people, peasants or slaves who are tied to the land. Serfs, or you know, depending on where you are. Um, and and sort of who they are, and it's kind of legally documented and, and prescribed. And then you have the huge land-owning gentry, and then you have the church around. So, I mean, there's still a fair bit of variation, but you have some major divisions. But the whole point of a city is those divisions just go, they're gone. They're blown up. They don't exist anymore. So, if if you're a small-scale trader who has one boat that does... I don't know goes from Delft to Hamburg or something I, you know you're on a Hanseatic league boat or something now are you a capitalist because you have one boat i mean i guess that makes you moderately rich a small boat and you have a small crew they're certainly not the proletariat because they're kind of a specialist crew and then but you're also a merchant so you're you know, you're trading I mean, yeah, it just doesn't work. None of this works. It makes no sense. And yet we still love this. People still try to say, oh, well, this is the, you know, these are blue-collar workers. These are white-collar workers. These are the capitalists. These are the—and it's like, yeah, no. This See, that stuff wasn't true 400 years ago in cities, and it's certainly not true today. But we're so desperate for identity that people loved this idea. I think it's one of the main appeals of Marxism, um, and in fact fascism has a similar uh, methodology— is it gives people a lie that says, oh, now you belong to something. You're a member of a group. You know who you are, and the group will tell you who you are. In fact, you know, Stalin, if you you didn't let the group tell you who you were, they were really going to tell you who you were. Um, You know, this sort of, Oh, class doesn't seem to be working out, we'll impose it with a gun kind of thing. That's why you had to get the guns out, by the way. If classes had existed, you wouldn't need all the guns in the re-education camps. It's the fact that they'd made no sense and that, you know, it was falling apart that you had to get the guns in the concentration camps to try to make it look at least vaguely plausible, but that sense of identity was very attractive to people and it simplified the world. And that's what we were so desperate for. We want the world to be simple. We want it to be comprehensible. We want to know where we fit. We want to know where everybody else fits. And when you get something like the Marxist theory of class, which is again, clearly nonsensical, then I have a schema Even if I don't feel like it applies to me, of course it doesn't apply to me, but it applies to everybody else, and that makes me feel good. I know where everybody else fits in the world, therefore I have a really good sense of where I can fit in the world, and yay, everything's making sense again. But no, once you get into the city, that's when that kind of stuff becomes really uh, desirable. Those sorts of bizarre narratives become attractive because... When you don't know everybody, you need right. You need a rule that allows you to sort of know everybody, and you know, let it all roll through. Right, who belongs in what class and all this. On a smaller scale, you can see this when you start getting things like clubs in London. It's sort of, uh, you, you get them not just in London, but I guess they're most famous in London for some reason. <clears throat> but and this is the notion of being a member of the club. Tells people who you are. They had clubs for writers. They had clubs for conservative parliamentarians, uh, parliamentarians for, for more liberal parliamentarians, you know, the Whigs and the Tories. and uh, you know, the, So all these different clubs were a type of identity politics. So if you said you're a member of some clubs, then people go, oh, well, now I know a lot about you. That tells me a lot about who you are as a person. And this will let me feel good about who you are. And it allows you to communicate to other people the kind of person that you are. And so they can take all kinds of assumptions, which is, of course, one of the beautiful parts of being a member of the club. And then when you're at the club, of course, everything there is designed to reinforce your sense of who you are, your identity, you belong, you're a member. And people are like, oh, we love this. We love this notion. We love this sense of identity and belonging and reinforcement of who we are. And it's like, yeah, there you go. That's, that is what people are desperate for. And so you see this in all kinds of ways. You know, athletic clubs where people work out at particular kinds of gyms or, <clears throat> again, you know, dining clubs. All these sorts of private things that people are trying to organize in forms and groups that they can be in that give them a sense of, oh, now I know who I am and other people. Now I can say, oh, I'm this, I'm part of this thing. And they go, oh, I don't know you, but I know that, I've heard of that. So this allows me to form a sense of who you are. And so it's very valuable for me to be able to communicate easily and effectively a sense to somebody of who I am. And then I can feel comfortable because I feel like they know who I am and now they can reinforce my sense of myself and I can reinforce their sense of themselves. See see how weird that is? It's like the, I need them to reinforce who I am so I can feel good about who I am. And I need to be able to reinforce who they are so they can feel good about who they are. And if we can't do that kind of reciprocity, ooh things break down really quickly. And it's generally easy. Now People are going, oh, you know, you have to be in your own identity and all this. And yes, sure. We'll talk more about that. But at at fundamental levels, no, that's wrong. Human beings are evolved to live in societies or social groups that reinforce their sense of who they are. This is a million years of evolution. We aren't going to just wake up one morning and go, boop, don't care about any of this anymore. Just let it all go and float free in the universe. I mean, it's an, it's, potentially an admirable goal, but even that I'm sort of dubious on. Notice that when the Buddha went into the forest, he went with a group of people. Jesus got his disciples, right? I mean, the, 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 it was it's not a coincidence. It's, they needed people to reinforce the sense of what they were doing, that this is, is part of the program. It is a reciprocity, a necessary sort of human uh, idea uh, to uh, survive and feel good about who you are it is that sense of oh I want to share this reflect this have it reflected back to me um, Confucius sets up a school travels around can't get anybody to listen to him sort of ends up setting up a school where he can interact and participate and have things reflected back at him this is it's not a weakness or a failing it's, it's, it's humanity at its core and so when we think about these things of identity and we think about the problems that the city blo- throws up you know just get, keep this in mind that it's not just you not knowing who strangers are it's the sad notion of, of strangers not knowing who you are and then not being able to feel good about who you are or feel identified and appreciated because you, you're in a group of strangers and then how many times have you felt mistaken Right, that someone has mistook who you are, sometimes hilariously. One of my favorite stories is I'm often working outside and I was working on a farm one time, and this, I guess, well meaning gentleman came up to me, clearly, you know, very well dressed, I would say a professional from the city, and he said, you know, have you ever thought about getting an education? I I was pretty much covered in mud, you know, had been working outside for a while in this public space. And, you know, and, and, you know, if you're thinking about getting an education, and I think he for some reason was concerned about me and thought, wow, there's, there's a person who maybe you know could do something with their life and i told him nah, i said you know i really like to be outside and i don't go much for that book learning and and and, and then he just sort of walked off and I, I i probably shouldn't have said that but but this is true right and so i just thought that was hilarious um because right there this huge chasm of mistake but how how could he know right how could he know that i wasn't Uh, You know, an illiterate peasant, uh, apparently, Um, because I was dressed like an illiterate peasant. I was covered in mud like an illiterate peasant. I was crawling around in the dirt, as one does. Um, But that mistake is so consistent. And generally, we try to do things that avoid that error. We either want to be identified a particular way, and so people dress very carefully to achieve that, or we address not to be noticed. And that seems to be the maybe the predominant strategy. I'm always trying to count people. I rarely go to cities, but if I go to cities, I like to sit around and try to count people and go, you know, trying not to be noticed it's like a camouflage right so they can pass smoothly without creating ripples you know not notice not notice not notice not notice not oh, oh notice notice no notice, no right the different messages that people are sending and how strong and you know this is very arbitrary and difficult to pin down but it's about I would say about 50% of the people are trying not to be noticed just to go smoothly they don't want to attract attention in any direction in particular but notice excuse me the problem with this is of course this sort of undermines the capacity of other people to feed back to you anything except that you're a cog, right? You're an unwashed mass because this is the message you're trying to send. And so you get that message back, but how does that make you feel? That makes you feel like, well, I blend in and I don't matter. I mean, I'm not in trouble and I don't have friction, but on the other hand, everybody's just, I'm, I'm just getting neutral feedback all the time, which of course, it's maybe preferable than getting high, highly variable feedback, which is once you stray out of the norms, of course, you start getting highly variable feedback. Some people go, "Oh, that's great, I love that," or like, "What the hell is that person doing?" You know. And so we're always trying to mitigate that. But I'd say, again, I mean, you you pick the number. I, I absolutely arbitrary. Like I said, I just sit on the corner and count people as a well, like corner, I sit in a coffee shops and count people as they go by, and try and figure this number out. <clears throat> but if you're if you're doing that, and if you do that enough. And then, you, then people report this, oh, I just feel like I'm, you know, this faceless, soulless person living in an anthill. And it's like, of course you do, because this is what you're trying to do to get by in the anthill, which is a completely reasonable response to these sorts of problems. But of course, it's not a good solution to the problem, but it's, it's an understandable response. And so we're all, we're caught in these, these multi-dimensional and really quite subtle and tricky traps. And so this is aspect one of trying to figure out the difficulties uh, surrounding uh, our identity and sense of identity in the modern world is to keep in mind that once you thrust people into cities, you get this problem of the stranger, which is the problem of the other, but you all, and I think it's much more insidious and much more challenging is the problem of the stranger not knowing me. And therefore, I am incapable of getting my identity reflected back to me and reinforced. And that, I think, is a much bigger uh, and less well-understood aspect of this. And we're going to meditate on that uh, quite a bit moving forward. So there you go. Number, what are we, three or four? I think it's number four or three. I think we must be on four. let Let's. Let's. I don't remember, actually. I should have said at the beginning, but that's country to city. Uh, so thank you very much. Oh, and class is still available. People have been enrolling. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And yeah, it's all up on the website. And I put the little video up finally. Hey, what do you know? So thank you. Hope this finds you well. And coming up next, we'll keep pursuing this concept of identity.